Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. This is Lucas Duber, joined as always by Rachel Madel. How are you? I'm doing really good. I have a really funny story to share. Okay, I'm excited. So I have been working with this little girl who is, she's four, I guess now. And she, we've been doing some AAC with her. She is verbal, but she's just using a lot of scripted language. And we've been doing a lot of work with core words. Cause of course she has every noun there ever was. She like, you know, pointed to something in a book and was like, that's an excavator. And so she has really like specific nouns, but she doesn't have a lot of core words. So she's not able to put a lot of sentences together. And I was, I was at a session with her last week and I, we were on a break and she was kind of doing something. She loves to listen to music on her break and a song came on and I started singing, um, kind of lightly. It didn't seem like I was singing really loud and out of nowhere, I hear stop. (laughs) And I was like, what is she saying? Is she saying stop? And I realized she was telling me to stop singing. She didn't like me singing. And I thought it was so funny because I just... You know, we've been working on that word for a long time because she tends to have meltdowns when she doesn't like something that's happening. And finally, she's like, stop, Rachel, stop. (laughs) So clearly she doesn't like my voice. That's fantastic. And you know, this is a good example of um, sometimes uh, some of the biggest breakthroughs in language happen around expressing a preference that isn't necessarily positive, right? Yeah. Um, I think I've told the story before about a student I was working with for a really long time to get to uh, a three-word utterance in a variety of ways. And finally, at the end of one session, he, he, called, he called me ugly Luke butt. And I was very, I was just so happy that we had the, the three words together. I don't really care what, what he had to say. I mean, obviously, you know, my feelings were hurt. And I'm still sort of hiding in the dark about it and crying. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's important to be able to say uh, anything that we want to say, not just what uh, we sort of let kids say, right? And that's the power of four words. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. I just love hearing sentences like that, Lucas, because I work with a lot of kids with autism and they do a lot of scripting. So when they break the script it shows me that they're actually formulating unique thoughts um, into, into language. And so I, and I always tell parents that I'm like, I would love if I hear a grammatical error, because that means that, you know, they're not following the script that they've heard, you know, so frequently. So I really love when we have, you know, sentences that aren't, that aren't grammatically correct and that have never been said before, because that's, that's our goal, right? To give kids spontaneous novel utterance generation snug, I was going to say snug. Yep. We want those. Exactly. And obviously we want to, you know, get the grammar and stuff in place eventually, but, uh, but getting the, I mean, you know, how, how many times is the typically developing child utter an ungrammatical sentence during the course of their language acquisition, right? So exactly. Well, speaking of people who disagree with us sometimes, uh, we actually were going to talk today just a little bit about situations where you may not agree um, either with the family uh, of an AAC user or potentially even with the school team um, about uh, AAC use and um, and what the, that can look like. And I know this is in the context of uh, the interview that we're doing today where we talk a little bit about screen time, which uh, is a pretty hot topic. Rachel, what do you guys talk about there? So the interviews with Stacey Lindberg and I absolutely love her work. She is very knowledgeable about screen time and how it affects early intervention and and young children developing language. And it, we talk about in the interview, it's not, it's not this good versus evil, you know, screen time's terrible or screen time's amazing. You know, it's just, there's, there's a lot of things that we need to take into consideration when we're talking about screen time. And, you know, the truth is we don't know a lot. There's not a ton of research on the subject. So really just remembering to 
take what we know and and try to articulate that to our clients. And, and Stacy, she does a really good job. She works with a lot of families doing early intervention work and you know, she, she comes up with, with people, she works in LA, she comes up with people who are like so anti-screen time and then others who are like, it's so great. They're learning so much. Um, so I think it's just, it's really, it's interesting to think about how can we, how can we, we, we shape what we're teaching? Um, even when, you know, maybe the parents disagree with us, um, even with our expertise and our knowledge, sometimes families have an idea in their head about what they think a specific therapy session might look like or what app you know, their child should be using to communicate with. And sometimes we know, you know, from clinical decision-making that it might not be the best, the best suit, but I think it's important to, to always figure out how to manage that relationship so that you both can come out with a child making progress, which is obviously our ultimate goal, both parties. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So there's a couple of themes that come up here for me. One of them, and you've, you've made this comment before on the podcast about how LA is like super anti-screen time, which is funny for me because like I have no context on LA whatsoever. And most of like the like circle I roll with quote unquote, like people are really into educational apps and that sort of stuff. So I don't hear as much. If anything, I hear like positive about exposure to like multi-touch, like iPads and, and applications. And like simultaneously, obviously if you, you know, if you go to the app store on, on the iPad, for example, and look at the top selling apps, you're going to find a lot of educational stuff, right? You're going to find stack the States and whatever else. And, um, you know, certainly anything Toka Boca always rises right to the top. So like, like there, there is this real question. I, I think we're part of the backlash is some people look at that and say, Oh, these parents are just letting the iPad be the parent, right? You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're just letting them hang out with the thing and play with it. And there's nothing guided about it. Um, you know, and then there's other people that say, no, these have, you know, the interactive elements of, of these is what makes them educational. Right. Um, and in AAC, we're in sort of a unique situation because there has to be a screen involved of some kind, right. When we're talking about high tech AAC, but I think the argument that I would make, um, or that I have made to parents and clinicians is that screen time, sure, you know, potentially sure, I could see how it's harmful when that's all that the student is interacting with. But if they are interacting with us as, and have a screen there as part of the interactive object that we're working with, I think that's an entirely different situation. I couldn't agree more. And that's the thing. You, we can use technology as a tool. Uh, children are so motivated by technology. And that's why I have videos on my website of me using certain apps, like Book is one of them. All these really fun apps that are really engaging for kids are perfect ways to incorporate core words. Um, you know, and, and the motivation's there, right? We're always trying to find the motivation for kids. Uh, it's there when you pull out their favorite game. And the nice thing about core words is that you can use them in a variety of different situations. So I can always find a core word to work on with any game. It's like, it's a challenge of mine. I I literally give kids the iPad. I'm like, what game do you want to play? And then I, you know, my challenge is, okay, how can I make this language rich? How can I figure out something to target that we're working on uh, to expand their language? And so I think, you know, technology is a really powerful tool, but I think that 
Stacy brings up a really great point that we don't want to take away from, you know, connection and interaction. And I think that the best screen time is screen time alongside of your child. It's not give the iPad and walk away. It's let's interact with this. Let's pause the YouTube video and then talk about what we said, what we saw. So I think that that's, that's the big piece for me is that, you know, use screen time, but, but don't detract from children hearing language and, you know, children having opportunities to talk about what's happening. And, and that's one of the caveats that I always give when I'm talking about using apps. It's not put something in front of a child and walk away. It's okay. How can I engage with them? How can I interact with them? And sometimes, especially if kids are used to getting an iPad and then playing the games that they want, it's really important to establish, okay, I'm going to hold the iPad and I want you to tell me what's happening. Um, so sometimes there's a little bit of struggle in the beginning because kids are used to like getting handed off a phone or a tablet and then just getting free reign. Um, and that's not, that's not the way I roll in my sessions. Um, and kids find that out really quickly, but it still can be a really engaging, fun experience. You just kind of have to set the parameters for that. Yeah, totally. So you can leverage something that's inherently, you know, motivating for them, um, but make sure that at the interaction ultimately is about you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I totally agree about incorporating language and those things. I mean, I've used Minecraft that way, like so many times, but like one critical thing, of course, always remember is that this isn't being done on the communication device, right? So the device is always a separate tablet from, from whatever we're using. Yeah. So thinking of like bigger disagreements, right? Not, which isn't to say screen time is a small one. And I'm excited that's coming up. But what about that time when you have a family that comes to you that um, is really dead set on either an app or a methodology that you don't think is the right fit? Oh, that's a really tough one. And it happens more often than I would like. Um, I think the biggest thing, and I've said this on past podcasts, is that you really need to develop a good rapport and build trust. And sometimes that means doing things that you that might not be your first, your first go-to. And I tell the story, I was working with a family and they were so determined to have the child say hello and goodbye. This child had no functional communication and they were like, we want him to say hello, you know, to his teacher and, and goodbye when his therapist leave. And I'm like, okay, that's great. You know, not where I would start. I really want him like getting, you know, his needs met first um, because I, I don't think he was grasping the whole idea of greetings. Um, I think that's kind of an abstract language concept that kids, you know, obviously develop with time and we want to incorporate, but I want his needs met so that he's not throwing himself on the ground and tantruming and, you know, self-injurious behaviors and all these things. Um, but I also needed mom to buy into what I wanted the goals to be and what I wanted to do. And so I was like, okay, let's put hello and goodbye, you know, on here and let's practice it. And sure enough, he started using it independently with enough, you know, language models and, and he started saying hello and goodbye and mom was thrilled. She was so excited. And, you know, what happened in that moment was she trusted me. And then she was like, okay, what's next? He says hello and goodbye. What's next? I'm like, okay, well, we have a whole, whole lot of other words that we can work on now. Um, but, you know, it's a perfect example of she was just so determined to have him use those greetings. And I didn't think it was necessarily the best, but I, you know, I did it. I didn't, that's not all I did, but I definitely put a heavier emphasis on it than I would have you know, if I was just walking in and saying, okay, here's, here's what we need to do. 
Yeah, I mean, this, this, that to me, that falls into the category also of families or, or clinicians I've known that really want to have please put on the end of, you know, different requests and things like that. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's, you have to weigh something that is truly of value, right, which is the, the, the social sort of outcomes for that child and the beliefs that their family has around what they should be saying, right? And that does, that has value and should weigh into our decisions. But we also have to, to, you know, contrast that with, with things that we know from the evidence are, are going to inspire growth and, you know, that um, are pedagogically supported and, you know, we have research around. Um, and, and so I think there's a little bit of a balancing act in, in that regard. But I think that more important than anything, like, like you started to say, is, is that relationship with the family, right? And, um, you know, even more than just uh, vocabulary choices, what I'll have often is a family that'll come to me that maybe has read some blog posts or seen a video and really likes like one specific app. Or, or approach or whatever it is. And with exceptions, um, for the most part, I'll, I'll, I'll roll with that. And, and let me tell you why is that um, it's a funny memory, but when I was like 16 years old, I worked for Sears, right? And I, this is a true fact about Lucas. And I sold televisions um, in this, this ratty little Sears knockoff chain thing. And um, there was this, this gruff old man that I worked for that um, they, I, I remember this family came in and they wanted a Sony television, right? And this is, this is mid nineties probably. And, um, and I was telling him like, no, you, you understand like this Toshiba or whatever it was is $50 less expensive and it's got all the same features and it's great. And the family ultimately ended up leaving. And, um, and this, this guy came over to me later and he goes, son, if somebody comes in to buy a Sony, you sell them a Sony. And for whatever reason that sort of has stuck with me is this bizarre and obviously not universally applicable argument for like, I mean, if, if there is a commitment to, to start AAC, you know, using app X, whatever that might be, and you may not, maybe don't think it's perfect, but that it is something that can achieve some outcomes. Then I don't really see that as being the hill that you should die on. Right. Um, I think that's something that you can probably work towards and, and get buy-in with the family and start there. And then sure, maybe there'll be adjustment at some point. Maybe it's not a, a, a totally right fit. Um, but first and foremost, I think is embracing the buy-in to AAC as a concept and getting the family working with a clinician on it. Um, now that being said, there are exceptions. There are some cases where the app is just simply not the right fit. And there are situations where the approach is absolutely not the right fit, like, you know, facilitated communication or whatever it might be. Um, but as a rule, that's not what people come to me with. They'll come to me with something that's just maybe a little bit different from what I would have chosen, but still probably pretty valid. Absolutely. And if a parent comes to me really excited about an app to start AAC, I'm excited because I feel like I spend half of my day convincing families that AAC is the right answer. So if we've already kind of gotten over that hurdle, I'm pumped. Um, a lot of times because a lot of the apps are generally very robust and assuming it's a robust AAC system, I'm like, we can make this work. Um, obviously I counsel them on what are the pros, what are the cons, what are the features for this specific system and maybe other features that might work better. Um, but at the end of the day, I need them to, to want to use that device. There's nothing worse than setting up a family with a device that they don't think is going to work because guess what? They're not going to use it. They're not going to use it the same way at least. Um, so it feels like you're starting off on the wrong foot if you have such a clear idea of what you want and what system you want um, without taking the family's input into consideration.
Um, at the end right. of the day, I think family input and, and team input. Chris always says this. I wish Chris was here because he would totally hop in right now um, and talk about how AAC is a team decision. It's not something that, you know, I'm an SLP and I specialize in AAC and I'm the one who makes this final decision. It's not like that or it shouldn't be because at the end of the day, it just, it needs to be a discussion. Here's, here's what are our options. Here's what we've seen through trialing and assessment. And here's what we think is a good fit. What, do, what does everybody else think? Right. And then to continue that, right, to have the parent be an active participant in the ongoing process of learning about the device and of shaping the IEP at school and, um, and everything else. And I, I think for the most part, parents, in my experience, have been more and more than willing, sometimes overly willing, right, to, to, to be involved with that. So, um, so I mean, that's, that's all great. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's one thing that I think a lot of SLPs recognize pretty quickly is that a big part of our job, obviously, is, is knowing the research and doing the intervention and, you know, being able to sort of speak to all the different stuff that we do from a clinical intervention standpoint. But there's a whole other large component that is that's counseling, right? And mm -hmm. It's about making those human personal connections, whether that's with the client or with the family, and sometimes having to deliver bad news, right? And um, when you deliver that bad news, uh, that's going to be challenging conversations, but ultimately in the long run, I think they're always enriching and fulfilling ones. Um, and even if, uh, you know, you have to have a disagreement with a family that results in, um, you know, maybe them not working with you uh, exclusively in the long run, as we sort of talked about a few situations in our private practice conversation a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I, it, nine out of 10 times, I found that those people have come back around after some time and will let you know, let me know that the interaction that we had was, you know, was positive. Um, and I also think there's something to be said for, a, you know, a therapist and a child dynamic and a family dynamic. And you have to fit into that, to that child's life and that, that dynamic has to be there. And for the most part, it's typically there for most of the kids that I see, but there's that one kid sometimes who are like, whoa, like this is just not working. And I think that there's something to be said for that. I just got off the phone with a mom who was a new referral and she's been searching for, you know, a private speech therapist and she you know, has been through a lot that haven't worked and she was feeling really bad. She's like, maybe I'm just being too picky. And I'm like, absolutely not. First of all, if you're going to find a private therapist and invest a lot of money, it has to be a good fit. Um, you know, it's not, it's, it, I realize in the schools, it's not, it's not as easy, right? Because of lack of, of SLPs in the district and, you know, turnover, you don't always get to choose who your SLP is, but if you, if you're finding private therapy, then you absolutely do. Um, and so it has to work both ways. Like any good working relationship, there has to be good rapport and you know, a connection. Otherwise I can't, I can't do what I do. If there's that, if that connection's missing, then I can't do my best work. Um, and so it would be better for somebody to find a different therapist. Yep. Yep. And that's totally okay. And it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt my feelings. It might, it did a little bit at the very beginning, but yeah. know, my, my feelings are pretty thick these days. So I know the first time I had a family, like, you know, do a consultation with me and then not book another session. I was like, Oh no, like, what have I done? I got really hard on myself and it was just, it was a really tough case. And the kid was super behavioral and like to the point where like, I even like any type of communication demand, it was just a no. And I just felt like we really need some behavior intervention, which I don't say often. <laughs> um, but I really felt like 
you know, we need to get him over this hurdle where any type of demand that's being pl placed on him for communication, like he's just like throwing himself on the ground and like running to mom and crying. Um, so, you know, obviously he didn't have a good session with me because I was trying to elicit some type of communication, whether that's give me a picture or a sign or an approximation, eye contact, anything. I was like reaching for anything. And he had a really hard time. And of course he was upset the whole time. And so like family didn't call me back. <laughs> well, I would argue that it's probably just because you can't sing. Right. <laughs> it might be because they heard me sing and they were like, absolutely not. <laughs> well, on that note, um, I think uh, I, this, I mean, this, this is a, a broader conversation that can go on forever, but we do want to address the screen time piece. So let me please introduce, of course, Rachel Meadle and Chris Begay together on one interview addressing the concept of screen time. Welcome back to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Chris Bouguet. How are you, Chris? Fantastic. I'm so glad we get to do this together, Rachel. I know. Friday is my favorite day, podcast day. Um, and I'm really excited to have Stacey Landberg. Stacy is a speech language pathologist who specializes in early intervention, caregiver coaching, and autism. Stacy has completed an exhaustive literature review to answer this question. What are the effects of digital media and screen time on communication development? Stacy travels the country answering this question and has trained over 700 media mentors across the United States. Stacy, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. Yay. Thank you, guys. This is a pleasure. I'm excited, too. Yeah, absolutely. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in screen time and why you decided to dive into this kind of research. Sure. Well, I think you kind of covered it pretty well. Um, basically forever. So I've been doing the early intervention home-based um, thing with kids and families for 13 years. And up until I became a mom, I pretty much always told parents, no screen time for kids under two. And that's where our conversations started and ended. I don't think anyone listened to my advice, but that was the advice I gave and the conversation didn't go any farther. Um, and then I had my own kids, um, one in 2012 and one in 2013. And um, it was really hard to follow my own recommendations. And I really started to wonder why? You know, at the time, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations were a little different. Um, they said no screens before two. And, you know, I wanted to know, well, what happens at two that suddenly their brains can handle it? You know, and, and why only an hour a day? Like what happens at 61 minutes, right? So I wasn't, I wasn't pleased or content with the recommendations that they were having. So I said, I really want to know much more. Like I'm curious about what's happening in the brain and where these recommendations came from. And so that's how all of this got started for me. Um, it started first with parent talks that I gave in Los Angeles. And then, yeah, as you said, I've been doing the talks now across the country, actually closer to almost a thousand people that I've been able to teach on this topic now. It's just pretty exciting. So, yeah. And I, I saw you speak at ASHA and I just was really impressed with your presentation. It was fantastic. All the information was really eye-opening. Um, and I think that it's something that we kind of are just starting to hear about screen time and kind of it's this buzzword. Um, and there's very polarizing opinions on it. So I'm really interested, you know, especially because we have a podcast that's dedicated to technology, right? right. Um, which we'll obviously get into, but it's just so interesting. So we'd love to like, I'm just excited to pick your brain. 
So tell us what ours, what is some of the research? What, what happens at 61 minutes? What did you discover <laughs> in your you're diving into this. So I discovered that um, pediatricians err on the side of caution, right? So their mentality is like, first, do no harm. So the truth is that there's, we're definitely lacking in research um, for certain. And I think the recommendations were basically set and then changed, as we know, um, a little over a year ago, um, because just based on we, we don't know enough, so let's err on the side of caution. Can you tell us a little bit more about those changes? Let's assume people don't know what they were and what they changed to. Sure. So um, from 1999 to 2000, oh, it might be 16 or 15 now, I can't remember. But um, basically, the American Academy of Pediatrics said no screen time for kids under age two. And after age two, an hour a day is okay, as long as it's educational content. And then about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, they said, okay, we're going to, we realize that this is an antiquated uh, recommendation. And now because of, you know, research can't keep pace with technology. So now we say instead it's going to be no screen time except video chat for kids under 18 months. And then after 18 months, they recommend things like educational content only, no screens in bedrooms, no screens right before bed. So their recommendations um, changed not so much, but um, again, my focus is really on early intervention. They made other recommendations for older kids too. You know, I, I can only share mostly about the zero to three crowd. So one thing I want to kind of just establish right off the bat, what's the difference between active and passive screen time? Because I know those terms are thrown out there a lot, and I just want to make sure we have a clear definition. Um, I'm glad you asked this, because personally, I don't like these two terms. Um, and so I'm going to share a little bit more about why. But um, um, I just I think they can be misleading. So most people think of active screen time as being content that requires a child to actually do something, right? So this would be like an app where a child has to come up with a specific answer to a problem, um, complete a puzzle, or something like that. And actually, high-tech AAC would be this same kind of active screen time because it typically requires focused attention to come up with a certain response or an answer. Um, and passive screen media, on the other hand, usually refers to what we think of as like a child being zoned out watching TV, right? Nothing's really required of them. They don't actually have to do anything to participate. Um, but that's the part that I think can be pretty misleading because the ability, especially again for young children, to process and understand what you see on a screen, even if it's just a simple TV show, is very like cognitively demanding for young children. So if it's okay, I'll just share an example. Um, imagine that a child's watching a cartoon of the three little pigs, and in one scene they see the wolf going down into the chimney and then cut to the next scene where the wolf is grabbing his bottom and screaming because it's on fire, right? So as adults, we make sense of those two scenes very easily. And, you know, probably each scene is two to three seconds long. Um, and we can infer the connection between those scenes. But for a young child, they don't make that sense between what happened. You know, they're not making that um, correlation between scenes. And then they're also not making that connection to how does any of this what I see on a screen relate back to anything in my real life, right? So, um, so that's why that term passive 
can kind of be confusing because it makes it seem like nothing's happening in the brain and they're just sitting there. But really, um, it's hard for children to process what they see on screen. So um, I thought I would share that um, there's some new research coming out from Dr. Daniel Anderson and uh, Dr. Matthew C. Davidson, where they're talking about these terms differently and referring to them as interactive media, which is like what we call active now, mm -hmm. and receptive media. And I like that a little bit better because we know receptively, right? We're yeah. still learning or understanding or processing. I'll post a link on my website later to that publication once it comes out. But basically, these different types of screen media, interactive or receptive, can encourage different types of comprehension, learning, and retention. But they're just different. Kind of going off of that, you know, we would assume that, you know, active or interactive screen time was more beneficial. Is that something that you would recommend or is that something that you agree with or? Yeah, so again, I think it's gonna really depend on what we what the goal is, right? Mm -hmm. Do we want the child to learn blue, red, yellow, blue, red, yellow, blue, red, yellow, or do we want them to learn like a narrative? Like, do we want them to understand a, sort, a story sequence? Um, for some of the research with books versus eBooks, it's like when you're just reading a child a book, there might be an interactive piece, you're asking them questions about it, and then with an ebook, it's like, are they just listening to the storyline or are they pushing different buttons and kind of getting all over the place versus focusing on the storyline? So again, I think different types of media are going to foster different types of learning. It doesn't necessarily mean one is better than the other. Yeah, absolutely. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Let's talk a little bit more about the research. Um, I would love, one of the biggest takeaways from your presentation for me was the default mode network. Um, so I would love for you to just do an overview. We don't need to go like deep neuroscience here, but just give everybody an overview of what the default mode network is and um, how it relates to screen time and learning and things like that. Okay, so I'm excited to talk about this, um, but I will say, like I told you before, I'm used to relying on a lot of visuals, so I've never done this with audio only. Um, and it can be a little complex, but I'll do my best. Um, I became very interested in this research um, when I read one of Dr. Daniel Anderson's presentations um, that he had done on this. So he's been a big inspiration for me. But basically the default mode network is a neural network and it's activated in our brains by default. Okay, so like when we're not focused on something, when we're not trying to problem solve or learn something new, our mind is just kind of wandering our default mode network is active in our brain, okay? So um, the default mode network is active when we're thinking about the past, thinking about the future, when we're daydreaming, when we're engaged in um, theory of mind tasks, like thinking about our thoughts, feelings, and beliefs, and those, of, those thoughts, feelings, and beliefs of others. And it's also active when we're listening to narratives, when we're viewing narratives, like in a movie or a TV show, and even when we're like mentally planning for our own day. This, you know, the network is important, even though it seems like it's not, you know, revolving around focused learning. And it kind of goes back to that interactive versus receptive media, right? So when, um, when we're not problem solving, but we're just watching a movie, there's activation in our default mode network. So in healthy individuals, this network in our brain is active for about 47% of the time. Um, so it's important to note that when that network is not active, other brain networks are active, right? And those are the brain networks that are involved with focused attention and problem solving and focused learning. Can uh -huh. I jump in here? Sure. So I just want to ask people right now listening to this, they're in their default mode network, like they're, they're in that state right now. 
Hopefully not, because hopefully they're focused on what I'm saying and they're trying to learn something new. Now, if they're focused, they're using task positive brain networks, right? They're using different networks in their brain, maybe the dorsal attention network or some other network that we're not talking about right now. Now, if they're daydreaming and they're confused and they're off on another thing in their head, like, oh, I need to go pick up my kids later, then they're using their default mode network. Now, these networks go back and forth very quickly, right, between each other, but they're not going to be active at the same time. So if you're in a six-hour seminar, like I'm teaching one tomorrow, I expect that some people are going to wander off, right? And that's why that kind of learning isn't always best for us, these six-hour chunks, because as I said, 47% of the time, we're in our default mode network, right? That part's active. You know, all these different networks in our brain are important, right, for different types of learning and different types of processing, right? Um, so good question, and it can get kind of confusing. So, um, Rachel, do you want me to s jump in on some autism stuff with this? Please, that's what I'm, I'm hoping for. Okay, so here we go. So um, it's interesting, but probably not surprising, that people with autism have reduced connectivity, right, hypo-connectivity in their default mode network. So that makes sense because we know kids with autism struggle with theory of mind, with joint attention, with um, narratives, with all these things that require default mode network activation, okay? And on the flip side, people with autism have hyper-connectivity in their other brain networks, those task positive brain networks. So there's more connections happening. They're not at that 47% of default mode network activity. The percentages are gonna range per person, but they're gonna be reduced than what we want or what we would hope to see. Okay, and this makes sense because Dr. Simon Baron Cohen says kids with autism are strong systemizers. They prefer patterns, repetitions, colors, numbers, shapes, and tasks with specific answers. Okay, so the screen time all comes in here because kids with autism, as we've all seen, can become obsessive about non-narrative videos, alphabet train right? Watching it over and yes. over and over again. Now we know they're not using their default mode network for that, right? They already have the hypo connectivity in the default mode network. And now instead of, you know, maybe watching something that's like a narrative or social interaction on screen, instead we're, you know, they're getting more obsessed with the patterns and the letter apps and all of those different things instead. So that's like a really, really rough overview. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to follow up on questions of it because I know it's a lot. No, it's fascinating. And I honestly could talk to you, I feel like, for hours about the default mode network because I think it's so fascinating. Um, but I think you bring up a really interesting point about not looking at either interactive or receptive screen time as one or the other or bad or good, uh, but really just kind of taking each child and, and especially if we're working with kids with autism, just having that in the back of our heads, knowing that, you know, that's an area of the brain that's, you know, hypo-connected and under-connected. And so if we can do things that support um, connections in the default mode network, you know, because a lot of times we're, we're, we're striving to work on theory of mind and all these things with kids. Um, it's just really interesting how the default mode network kind of loops into all of that. I agree. We could talk about it all day. It's so fascinating. So are we saying, and I think what people are going to be asking is, well, is it good or bad? Like, is it detrimental to watch the, what did you say, animal train over? Alphabet over? train. The Alphabet ABCs train. Over dinosaur, over, yeah. I'm thinking dinosaur train because that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, <laughs> any video that they kind of glom onto and they want to watch over and over and over again, 
should we be focusing on abatement or should we be focusing on using that as a therapeutic tool or maybe does it range? Yeah, I, and I agree. And kind of like going back to what Rachel said, I think we have to get away from this thinking about the one rule, right? So how are we going to use it in that moment? So, okay, they're really motivated by this. They're really interested in it. Can, is there some way I can add a social piece to it? Can I make it interactive with them socially? Can I pause it and get some back and forth with the child so we get some default mode network activation going as far as social interaction? Can we make it into a narrative. What's the train going to do next? Where's the train going to go? Right. So we're building in that piece um, versus the child who takes the iPad into the other room and watches it 40 times alone. Right. And then that's, so I think we just kind of maybe need to think about things differently. It's not that they can't watch it, but um, what can we think about differently? Yeah, I'm thinking about a typical classroom, an autism classroom that I, I, you know, I get to go into those pretty frequently and I see videos, uh, screen time specifically videos, being used as a break, you know. You've earned your break, you go watch this two to three minute video that you like and then we take it away. And I wonder if they couldn't be used more as an intervention tool as opposed to a break tool, you know. Yeah, I know Rachel's heard me talk about this at ASHA too. Um, I don't know, I don't want to gear too far away from our our subject, but um, I do think that there's something to be said for using technology as a reinforcement. Um, Because for kids with autism, in a way, we're almost reinforcing this idea of isolation, right? It depends how it's being used. But if you're earning the iPad versus earning something social, right? We're kind of, um, I know Emily Rubin talks about like when we use these kind of reinforcers, we're kind of like encouraging the autism, right? Um, Versus maybe using it as the therapy tool and then the reward or the break is something that's like a social piece or something interactive in another way. Yeah, I think that'd be a whole other topic to talk about. Totally. Fascinating. What about the use of screen time with AAC? How does it tie together? I think when it comes to AAC, there's many appropriate exceptions to the rules. So if a child has that high-tech SGD or the app that they're using, I think, you know, my feeling, even though in general, I feel that screen time should be kind of limited when possible. um, I feel like when it comes to AAC, that should be accessible to a child at any situation that a verbal person has access to their own voice, right? So um, I don't think we should be thinking about limiting their ability to use the AAC. Um, I do think, like Rachel, you have a lot of good information about how to control with guided access so that it doesn't become about the iPad and not the, the actual AAC. Definitely. And I think we have to kind of put those two into separate categories, right? Um, screen time, like I wouldn't consider, you know, AAC use screen time, right? Um, I mean, technically it is, yes. Like, are they looking at a screen? Sure. But, you know, that's their means of communication. So I think that trumps any type of, you know, potential detrimental effect. Um, but I do think it's important, like you said, to, to think about how we can manage this um, for recreational screen time use. Um, and how can we utilize it in, during our therapy sessions? And I mean, I think you make a really excellent point. And, and, and I do it too, right? I use screen time as a reinforcer. You know, you did really great work here. I know this is what you really want, so you can take a break and do it. Um, yeah. But I think how is 
clinicians, can we start infusing more social, you know, interactions and talking about what they see? And I just, I love kids, all the kids who work with me know that I, at one point will pause whatever video they're watching and try to talk to them about it. Um, you know, and I think we just totally. need to, and, and, and that that's established, right? I didn't, when I, when I first start seeing kids, it's usually the, the hardest thing for them because I think a lot of times kids are used to getting devices and then it's like, I have this device and this is, this is my time and you can't touch the device. And when you start incorporating it, you know, for therapeutic reasons, kids are like, whoa, why, why is she holding it? And why can't I touch it whenever I want to? Um, but that quickly resolves once kids understand the expectation and, um, and kids are really motivated to talk about it. Um, you know, I use apps all the time. I have videos on my website about, you know, apps that I use and how to support core words and things like that because it's so motivating and you can get kids talking when a screen's in front of them that they're really motivated by. Um, there's so many cool apps that can support so many core words that it's just, it's a really useful tool that I use. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think that your way of wording it as far as putting them in two separate categories makes perfect sense. Kind of transitioning a little bit, um, what's the best way to manage screen time? I mean, you know, we talked about guided access, which I think is a really useful tool. And for people who don't know what that is, just setting, um, and it's an iOS setting that you can put on. In order to get out of a different app, you can put a password. So kids have to have a password to get in. I also love the timer function. Um, so if there is like a five minute break, it's like, okay, the timer goes off and the iPad shuts down and you have to have a password to get back in. Um, but what are the other ways that we can start thinking about screen time and trying to manage it for kids that might become obsessive or have tantrums when it's taken away? Yeah, sure. So, um, Let's see. I think, you know, again, my, my suggestions are going to be mostly for that birth to three crowd because that's what I've worked with the most. But one of them is just that when we introduce it for the first time, it would be great if we do it mindfully instead of just, here's the phone and the child walks right. off, right? But being kind of clear, like, what is this? Like, whose is it? Where do we keep it? When do we use it? When do we not use it? And I think that just sets a good stage, right? For parents laying some ground rules, some boundaries, and it's easier to stick to them. And then kids know these are the rules around it. Um, another big recommendation is really an obvious one, but if um, you know kids learn by example, so if parents can figure out how to manage their own screen time, it's going to be easier for their kids to manage, be able to manage theirs. I just, I always talk out loud with my kids. I think that's a good way for them to hear about how I manage things in my own life and that I don't always have all the answers, but for at the dinner table and my phone rings, I'll say, oh, I'm sure it's Nana calling. I'm going to call her back after dinner because we don't have screens at the table. You know, as simple as that, but versus just ignoring it, I want them to hear that reflective thinking that I'm doing. And then just the biggest one I think is as far as management is when we're, when we're talking about infants and toddlers, um, if we can hold off on introducing it one more month, one more month, one more day, one more week, it's much harder to take it away once it's been introduced and they, you know, they know how to find the YouTube icon and, you know, they, they're crying for it and becomes these self-regulation issues and all of that. I think it can just be a lot easier to just not introduce it at four months of age if we can, which is, the, um, is, which is currently the time that the average American child first has screen time is four months. So yeah, if we can hold off a little bit longer 
That would be another recommendation. And okay, I have one more, sorry. Um, one more is if we can try to not isolate our screen users, so can kids share? Like every child in the house maybe doesn't need their own device. And there is some research showing that like kids learn more and they problem solve better when they're having to figure out how to do something together. Um, you know, my son goes to the second largest school district in the country that boasts one-to-one -one devices. And I, I walk in those classrooms and I think, how about, you know, one to three devices, like these kids could be like sharing and problem solving and working together would be a great recommendation, I think, too. So, you know, Stacy, I think you land on some really interesting points there. I know with my own children as well, like the screen is not a babysitter. It is mm -hmm. a tool that we use to, for engagement together, you know. So if we're sitting on the couch and we have, uh, my daughter has her, her iPad, we're sitting there talking about what's on her screen. We're playing, or maybe even we're on two separate screens sitting next to each other, engaging in a game together in the same environment, you know, like we're in, both in Minecraft together. That sort of stuff, I think, is different than if it's, uh, I think, that, that, social, that social interaction piece. And I wonder, like, in those one-to-one -one environments in the schools, if that's not what teachers are trying to foster, you know, like that uh, we are both in this Google Doc together. You know, we are both uh, working on this video together and they're doing the editing and I'm doing the, the, the text that goes underneath or, or whatever, you know, as opposed to it's a, it's an isolated, like I working on by myself. Yeah, I think it definitely, you know, I, I work in a school too, and I think it definitely depends on the teacher and their willingness to like put forth a little effort. And, and a lot of teachers have that and they do it amazing. So yeah, you know, Stacey, I was going to say also, I loved your point about being um, reflective of your own use. So, and, and then dialoguing that out uh, verbally so your kids can hear it. Because I, I worry about uh, people not using devices around their kids. Like who teaches them to use it if it's not the parents, if it's not the students, they're going to learn bad habits. You know, they're going to, they'll eventually get it and never know how to do it. Um, right. And so this way, by you being the parent that's actively giving them strategies for how to use their device, uh, by talking about how you're using your own device, they're growing up in it rather than having to go back and learn it afterwards, you know, or learning it from their friends or something. Right, right. Or just learning by what they see. So if they see someone prioritizing you know, the device over real life interaction, right, then that's going to be what they, you know, a lot of times I think some of us that you know, didn't grow up with it in our hands all the time. We see people walking around and having conversations without looking up from their phones and we think it's rude, but like, it's not rude to them, right? That's very normal from what they see and what they've learned. So it's a culture change. Yeah. Stacey, I have a question. What would you say to a parent or a teacher or a speech language pathologist that is excited about screen time because they think it's educational and it's helping. Um, and would you say that, you know, if you are doing an isolated app or um, interactive screen time and you walk away, um, is there ever a situation where that is educational or is it, what would you say to that? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, I do get this question. So I'm trying to think of what I actually do say. And I think this comes into a point that you've heard me speak about, Rachel, with the transfer deficit, yes. meaning that even though we can learn from screens, there's things that we can't experience in real life, like related to outer space and physics and blah, blah, blah. So we learn those things by watching videos and reading. But we know, like the research is very solid, that we learn best from real life interaction. So if we were able to have that real life experience, we would learn it better. We would retain it better. Um, the research is clear on that and especially true with young 
children. So when parents tell me oh, they're learning all these English, you know, they, the family maybe speaks Spanish or another language and they're learning all these words from watching the English video show, my response is like, oh, I'm sure they are, but imagine how much they'd be learning on a playground with, you know, three other kids talking, right? So this idea that we're, it doesn't mean we can't learn from screens, but there is that idea that we would learn more and retain more from the real life interaction. Oh, Stacy, this uh, is so perfect for AAC because I think a lot of people think once uh, someone gets an AAC device and now that screen is in front of them, suddenly they'll be able to produce language and they'll be able to say anything they want to say. And that's what I think Rachel and I and everyone who comes on this podcast is trying to debunk that myth. Like it's about the interaction and that that's just a tool to help you. Uh, with that interaction. It's not going to just magically happen for a student, just like it's better, it's better to have it than not have it, but uh, just like it would be better to practice Spanish on a device than not practice Spanish at all, but that's not the, the optimal way to learn Spanish. <laughs> perfectly summarized. I mean, that, that's, it. that's it to a T. And so we call that the transfer deficit, right? Meaning that just because you learn it in 2D from a screen doesn't mean it transfers to real life application, right? So if you learn how to do a puzzle app, doesn't mean you can do a 3D real life puzzle and vice versa. Stacy, if you had a billboard that could say anything to every SLP, what would it say? It would say one size doesn't fit all. So meaning that let's not automate our jobs. Um, we are all critical thinkers. And when we hear those recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics, we're not just going to recite them to every family. We're going to look at each family, each child, and make the appropriate recommendations for them. Um, you know, for one family, I might be saying like, oh, let's try to limit the screens before bedtime, or let's try to change the content from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to something more appropriate for your two-year-old, right? So it's not just no screens or no screen time after 18 months or whatever it is, um, just that we, you know, as a field, become maintain our critical thinking and work with parents. Um, we know that many people have said, you know, parenting in the digital age, like this task is the greatest new challenge that parents face and they don't have a lot of support. And pediatricians are, you know, they're experts on typical child development. We are experts on children with special needs. So what's an appropriate recommendation for an 18-month-old might not be for a three-year-old functioning at a seven-month-old level, right? So we have to use our critical thinking here. And I, I think that would be my biggest recommendation. That's a lot to fit on this billboard. Yes, just the one size doesn't fit on. <laughs> I love it. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd love to, to talk about or mention? Um, I mean, we could talk about it all day. I know. I think we covered a lot. I don't know. It's up to you guys if there's anything else. Chris, do you have any other questions? No, I think that was great. I, I think your whole takeaway of thinking about each individual student and really the rebranding of active and passive, I think those are huge points that uh, will be really important to people. That uh, screen time is just not bad or good. It's way more complicated than that. Exactly. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I, yeah, of course. And Stacy, where can people get in touch with you online? So um, I have a, I admin for a Facebook group called Media Mentorship for zero to 36 month olds, where I kind of like post new research on this topic. Um, I also am pretty active in most of the early intervention speech therapy Facebook groups. And I have a website, it's speechtheraping, P-I-N-G dot com, W-W. 
www.speechtherapy.com. Perfect. And we will definitely link to those um, in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. I'm a part of your media mentorship Facebook group and I love it. Every time I get a notification, I'm like, oh, what's the new research? <laughs> um, you're always posting really great research, but also just articles that are coming out in more mainstream media about screen time and everything else that like we kind of talked about and touched on, which is really, it's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Stacey. I'm really excited for everyone to hear this interview and I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for inviting me. This was great, guys. Absolutely. For Talking With Tech, this is Rachel Madel, Chris Bouquet, and Stacey Landberg. We'll talk to you next week. Well, thank you so much to Stacey Landberg for joining us today. Um, thanks, of course, as always, to, to Rachel and Chris for doing the interview. And thanks to Luke Padgett in the background doing everything that he does. Um, we would love uh, to hear your thoughts. One way that you can do that is to head on over to iTunes. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a review. That helps other people to find us, which is really what that's all about. And if you haven't joined our Facebook group, please head over to Facebook search talking with tech. We would love to hear from you guys. We talked a lot about screen time today and I feel like it's definitely a topic that a lot of people have opinions about. So leave us a comment, ask us a question. We would love to hear from you guys. Well, for me, Lucas Stuber, Rachel Madel, and Chris Begay, this has been yet another Talking With Tech. We will talk to you guys next week.